Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Rebecca Martin, a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair of the DDSIG. Today, we're excited to be talking with Suzanne O'Neill, an associate professor and researcher at Midwestern University, who won the DD6's Research Award for the best platform presentation at CSM related to our membership. Suzanne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. So, Suzanne, can you tell us just a little bit about your professional background? Sure. I am a physical therapist, and I graduated from the University of South Florida in 2006, back when it was a master's program. And then shortly after, I enrolled in um, Northern Arizona University to get my transitional DPT. And shortly after that, I got my certification in neurology, so I'm an NCS. And so most of my background has been in the outpatient adult neuro setting. So I worked in a few hospital settings here in Arizona and never looked back since. I love neuro. It's kind of where my passion lies. And and fortunately, in the Phoenix community, um, in in the state, actually, we have such amazing resources for Parkinson's disease. And so I, I had really great opportunities to immerse myself in that community. I found it to be just such an inspiring, uh, amazing group of people to work with. And so naturally, you know, my research and also my, you know, my therapy interests lie in, in that community. So that therein brings me to my research interests. That's great. So your project was titled The Effects of Backward Cycling on Posterior Protective Stepping Responses in People with Parkinson's Disease. Before we jump in, I'd just like to give you a moment to acknowledge your teammates in this project. Absolutely. And thank you for giving me that opportunity. So my project was done as requirements for the University of Indianapolis for my Doctor of Health Sciences degree. And so this project was part of the requirements for that for my doctoral project. And so my committee members, Dr. Stephanie Miller, she was my mentor and chair of the committee. Um, and um, Dr. Elizabeth Moore, she was um, helping with the, the statistics part, the daunting part of the whole research. And Dr. Megan Eichenberry, she's actually one of my colleagues here at Midwestern University, served as the topic expert. And so I cannot thank them enough without their expertise and their just unique eye and bringing different perspectives to the project. Would, uh, this project would not have been successful without them. So thank you all if you're listening. So I really enjoyed your platform presentation, and I was very impressed by the amount of content that you were able to squeeze into just 12 (laughs) minutes. (laughs) It's probably because I talked really fast, and I felt like at the end, I was like breathing hard thing, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can talk for days if it's a big project like that. It's, you know, your capstone, your your dissertation of your your, um, whole degree. So can you try to just give us a brief overview of what your project is to kind of set the stage for today's talk? Sure. So with uh, patients I was seeing with Parkinson's, I noticed that it was just that retropulsion or the the tendency to fall backwards that I, I just couldn't address as effectively as I wanted. And so, you know, just thinking about different interventions and thinking about things that we commonly do, I don't know what brought me to backward cycling, but I, I, thought of that. I started researching a little bit about cycling. You know, it's been safe. It's readily available. And so I said, why not? And so I tried it out and here we are. So my question is, with the backward cycling, 
what did you think was really going to, to happen? Like as you were defining your variables, your characteristics that you were going to study, which ones did you expect to change? So the number one thing I expected to change was something with the backwards stepping response. And the, the difficult part was it, there's nothing really out there that really specifically looks at very specific characteristics of stepping backwards in a reactive stepping beyond just how many steps they take. You know, you could do like a push release test or something like that. And so I found it very difficult. So we basically had to kind of, you know, make a novel way of approaching that. And so that's why we we looked at, okay, what's the distance that they took? How long did it take them to study themselves? How many, and of course, how many steps did it take? And so what I was hoping for is if we could condition those muscles to activate in that specific sequence, because, you know, part of my research and literature search was looking at, you know, different EMG studies. And what I found is how the muscles sequentially um, contract during backward cycling seem to be somewhat similar to how they sequentially contract when they when you step backwards. So my hope was, well, if we maybe possibly condition those muscles in that sequential manner, would that help them be able to contract those muscles in, in that in that way in a stepping response? So because if you think about it, most of the things we do, I mean, we tend to bias forward, you know, we're doing forward walking on the treadmill, you know, forward cycling, forward stepping, things like that. And yes, we hopefully we add some backwards components, but but repetition wise, we don't get a lot of that. So I was trying to find something where not only is safe, readily available, you know, people have stationary bikes all over, but then can also give those high, high number of repetitions to really try to drive some some permanent change. Right, because we know that repetition matters is one of those principles of neuroplasticity that we want to have kind of at the forefront of of everything we do. Exactly. So when we're getting into, and I know I'm jumping the gun just a little bit here, but you were talking about how you've kind of created your own way for testing backwards stepping and the compensatory stepping for people with Parkinson's disease. Is the method that you came up with, is that something that you envision some clinicians using and adopting or pretty much just for your research purposes? So when we created it, it was it was basically for research purposes, just so we could have something to go on to show some change beyond just a number of steps. Because if you think about it, yes, you know, someone could take two steps, but if they were two longer steps or one longer step, that's much better than two tiny little shorter steps. You know what I mean? So at least oh, we can have some other variables to to look at in as more of a whole. And I, I do think it might be something that we could look in a little more and maybe research a little more heavily to say, is there something else that we could measure beyond just number of steps? But it'd be nice to have another just hard objective data to characterize uh, stepping responses. Sure. So for now, my my typical go-to for this population is the mini best, which is one yep. of the tests that you used. Is is that really what you would recommend for looking at the posterior stepping? Um, I mean, the mini best is one of my favorite tests. Just uh, overall, I love it, just because it gives you, you know, just you know, the subscore will just give you a nice kind of quick objective screen to say how is their posterior stepping response in general um, and again it can only go so far though because you're you're only really measuring the number of steps so so it's really hard to to say okay someone took you know two steps well you know but maybe they did it quicker or maybe they did it with longer steps okay that could show that they're trending towards a little better you know response right okay so then how many people did you have in your study 
So we initially involved 28, but you know, at the end of the day, I think we had 22 that completed the ent- entire program to one month follow-up. Great. Okay. So of those individuals that participated, they, they had their baseline testing and then you tested again, how often? So we did baseline testing. And then after the six week program, they did post testing. And so that occurred within a week of their very last exercise session. And then we had a one month follow up. Okay. And then your main outcomes that you were looking at were the gait and the balance, right? Yep. So, so the primary outcome was the posterior stepping responses. So how many steps, the maximal excursion, and then the time to steady. And then our secondary ones, we, we did look at gait and then we looked at aerobic um, like endurance. So the six minute walk test only because, you know, obviously it's a cardiovascular exercise. So we wanted to see, can we not only get some improvements in the steps, but do we get this uh, you know, another nice effect of improved endurance as well. Right. Yeah, of course. So what what did you find when it came to balance? So uh, interestingly, we had some significant improvement. So the number one thing that changed was we had significance in the amount of steps. So people were stepping or able to catch themselves in less steps. Everything else trended towards improvement, but we didn't get get significance. And talking to my statistical expert and my chair, we really feel it was because it was underpowered. So if we had maybe Mm. some more people uh, involved, we might have been able to approach significance with with a number of variables. The other thing that had significance was the mini best test overall. So I thought that was really a nice change. And when I I actually looked at the actual reactive subsection score um, just individually, and I can't remember the actual number off the top of my head, but I just took the mean score of that uh, subsection pretest and the mean score post-test. And there was almost a, a whole point change. So it, the average mean was like a 4.1 and then it improved to, I think, a 4.9 or something like that. So just in that subsection alone, we almost got a whole point improvement mean score. So I thought that was really interesting as well. And I know that really you were honing in and focusing on one subscale on that mini best, but do you know if the overall score change that happened, did it meet the MCID or not? Yeah. So when comparing um, pre-test to the post-test and looking at the mean scores for the mini best, um, we did have some improvement, but it was not enough to to exceed the uh, minimal detectable change scores or MCID scores. All right. So that was talking about balance, but now let's switch and talk about gait because there were some statistically significant changes with gait as well. Yeah. So here's another interesting part. So we did get significant improvements in gait speed in both forward and backward direction. And then we also looked at some gait variables, including step length and step width. But what's funny, and it was the complete opposite of what I was thinking might, what might happen. We had significant improvements in forward step length, but not significant improvement in backward step length. Again, it was trending positive, but just did not reach that significant. So we, again, we think if we we had enough power in our study, we might've uh, achieved significance in the backward step. But it's so interesting that we were able to um, get improvements in forward step length. That is interesting. And then for the, were there changes on the six minute walk test? So no, we did not have any significance. I mean, it, it changed a tiny bit, but nothing to to be excited about. It was basically the same. So do you know if the participants, when they were coming in, did you do an introductory survey asking them about their current level of function? 
No. So that was one of several limitations. So we didn't we didn't ask anything beyond just basic inclusion and exclusion criteria type things. Yeah. So it may be just that you had individuals who were already fairly active and in good cardiovascular shape. And that's why you didn't see the difference there, because they're probably the ones most likely to sign up for an exercise study. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So we narrowed it down to Hohenyar 2 and 3. So we did have kind of a mix of people who maybe scored not so great on the six-minute walk test. And we, and of course, we had the rock stars that scored pretty much close to normal on the six-minute walk test. So you're right, you know, we, some of the higher functioning people might have skewed or, or prevented that from getting any better. Yeah, all right, so the, the big question that we're always looking for is, how do we apply this clinically? So where do you see this treatment fitting in in the realm of physical therapy? Yeah, so the, the, the cool thing about this is it's so easy, right? So bike, you get on it, you pedal backwards, and, and, and there you are. And, um, and what's funny, and I did not expect this, is participants actually enjoyed it. And I thought they were going to come in and be bored or, you know, not like it, but they really, I don't know why, but they really enjoyed it. And I think it was because they were doing something and they enjoyed the exercise and they could feel like their legs were getting stronger because it's just a different way to work out. So they really enjoyed it. And I had several that continued um, after the the post-test was done. And so I thought that was kind of cool. So I I envision, I mean, if if clinics have, now a little caveat, I don't know um, if this can came across clearly in the presentation since I was going a mile a minute. The downside to the bicycle exercise backwards cycling is there's only a few types of bicycles that have resistance in the backwards direction. Some of your commercial stationary bicycles, if you pedal backwards, it's like you're pedaling against nothing. So there, but there are several out there, including the one that I used that when you pedal backwards, you actually get resistance that are that equates no matter it backwards or forwards, it's the same resistance. So that's the only caveat is clinics will have to you know get that type of bicycle that does have the resistance in the backwards direction. Now the good news is they're inexpensive. I got one for you know 500 bucks. So they're relatively inexpensive to get. The good part about it too is it's it's a really good thing for patients and safe to do at home as well. So it, it would be a great piece of equipment that patients can also utilize for their home exercise program, which being an outpatient therapist, I'm totally uh, on board with. So I envision it to be something you can do in the clinic. You can you know educate them on why they can get on it 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, however much time you have um, dedicated to the session. And then something that they can continue at home. So you're not just limited to something you only can do two times a week, you know, for however many weeks they're seeing you in clinic. Sure. So if, if you were to think about, all right, I have a a motivated patient that is willing to do a home program where they work out maybe 40 minutes a day, five days a week. I know that's lofty. I've got a few, but, (laughs) but let's say that that's what they're willing to do. What percentage of the time from your expertise on this, what percentage of the time do you think they should spend doing the backward cycling. So we we got really great results from only two days a week. So if you're if you're talking about someone that's gung ho at, at exercising five days a week, if if you could take those five days and split it out, because I mean, obviously there's other things to work on. So maybe two out of those five days, you go okay. Two out of those five days, I want you to pedal back, get on that bicycle that you got, and pedal twenty to thirty minutes backwards. And then the other days, we can work on you know whatever else that um, is specific to that patient. So I think that's where the future should go. Like, what if we do three days a week? What if it's a longer duration of program? Because we only did six weeks, which I mean, is relatively not long. 
what if we did an eight or 10 or 12 week program? Could we also reach significance? So, so right now I can only suggest two because that's what we looked at. So, and is there a target heart rate that you were going for or how did you really do intensity? So intensity, we um, elected to use just the subjective aboard rating scale. So it's a perceived exertion scale. And we set 12 to 14 as the moderate intensity scale based on some um, existing research. And so every five minutes, we had asked the patient, we had the little chart and we said, all right, you know, how hard do you think you're working right now? And they would rate themselves. And so we would then, you know, if they were within that, you know, 12 to 14, we'd say, okay, keep going. And if they fell below, obviously we told them to pedal harder and rated above, we told them to pedal a little uh, easier. Okay. So we already know that aerobic exercise is helpful for individuals with Parkinson's disease, right? And now you're presenting us with another option, another idea, another way that maybe it can be their fad for the, for the week or two. If you have those <laughs> patients that they get bored doing one thing, maybe we can put this in the mix and have them do that. What's your opinion or thoughts on how much just the aerobic exercise that was involved in your study may have contributed to the results that you found? Oh, absolutely. I I think a lot of that brought on some of the other secondary improvements. I mean, just aerobic exercise in itself probably helped with some of the gait uh, variables, uh, which is why I'm surprised that I talked about this in my presentation that I did not get more improvement on the six minute walk test. But I I did discuss in my presentation, part of it could be just, you know, the, the frequency wasn't probably enough. I mean, we're talking two days a week. And so if you look at the ACSM guidelines, they really want like three to what five days a week to actually make some aerobic change. So I'm thinking part of it was the frequency as well. But I do think just the aerobic exercise in and of itself did help. So so that's why I'm like, wow, so we could potentially have an intervention that not only addresses aerobic exercise, which we all know is so important to keep people healthy and to, to make some improvements, but also at the same time, could it possibly help with other variables um, including maybe some backwards stepping or you know forward and backwards walking. And so if yes, then we can instead of giving patients you know this whole you know novel of home exercise programs like we oh you know we, I love to do, um, could we narrow it down and have one thing that can maybe address you know multi things? And what I really like about the backward cycling or forward cycling for that matter is that this is something you can set individuals up with, maybe put some music on so they can keep yep. the rhythm going a little bit better, but it's relatively low risk. So if you have caregivers at home or if yep. these patients want to go to a gym, it's not as terrifying to me as a <laughs> clinician to say, all right, I'm going to get you on the treadmill by yourself at your house <laughs> in the basement and wear you out. And then you have to get off this treadmill safely. So yeah. I, I think there's some definite benefits to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this could be, we know motor priming too, right? That aerobic exercise before we're trying to learn skills like stepping backwards in the clinic can be so helpful. So this could be a really great warm up activity maybe for people. Yeah, absolutely. But it wouldn't be something that's probably going to be skilled physical therapy for long, right? Correct. Unless you were providing some uh, skill or doing some extra stuff um, along with it, some education. But yeah, my focus on this was really to have something that was easy to to do in the clinic, but also to to transition to home program, but to have something that they can add into a home exercise program that could be effective and, and meaningful. All right. So as we're starting to wrap up this conversation, is there anything that you feel like you didn't get to share that are just gems that people should definitely hear? 
Well, I will say I, I probably want to just be clear that, you know, this project definitely had its limitations. And so, you know, with every project, you want to make sure that people are aware of the limitations. So we tried to have the scheduling very consistent, but it was really tough to do with, you know, trying to manage research assistant schedules and my schedules. So we try to make it consistent to where we had people at their peak times, but there were, we could not control all of it. So, you know, some of some of the results might have been affected by just people not being always on their on times. And so that could have played an effect of some of the affecting the results in, in some way. Um, so I wanted to be clear on that. But I, I think just the bottom line that it's just really cool that we can possibly have this inter- this intervention and maybe you know others out there that are multifactorial can can do more than one thing and so we can we can be more efficient in what we're doing in the clinic and, and people can be more efficient in what they're doing at home and and be safe you know i i mentioned a research study in my presentation where they did a survey of people with parkinsons and asked them well why don't you know what are some barriers that you don't exercise at home and some of the things that stood out to me were was being a burden to your caregiver so uh, naturally it has to be something they can do mostly on their own and fear of falling, fear of hurting themselves. And so again, that might make this intervention attractive because it's something they can relatively do on their own and something they can be safe on. And so that was exciting to me. And what's next? What's your next research project? <laughs> um, so I, I have a couple of ideas in mind. Um, I don't know if it's going to be cycling specific, but I have some ideas um, utilizing an indoor rowing machine to see how that, because that's all extensor muscles, just to get some information about that. Um, and, I'm, and I have another study looking at various footwear and, um, and balance in, in people with Parkinson's disease. So we'll see where those go. And then we always ask, <laughs> what do you like to do in your spare time? Oh my gosh, people are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm a huge endurance junkie. And so I am a long distance runner. So I, that's all I, I just run a lot. I've done races up to 50 miles. And uh, so that's just, just, just what I do. I, I feel like, and that's where, interestingly, that's where I get most of my best ideas. Cause when you're running for like four to five hours at a time, your mind wanders and then you are amazed at what your mind comes up with. And so, and so that's probably where I get most of my crazy ideas. So what do you do in the summertime in Phoenix, Arizona? Uh, you wake up at very early hours in the morning. I'm usually, uh, I do a lot of trail running. So I'm usually on the mountain, like at 5 a.m. doing a trail run or yeah. So you get, you get used to, well, you don't really get used to it, but you just force yourself out of bed. So it's still like, you know, 85 when you wake up at five, but it's better than 110. So <laughs> So Suzanne, thank you so much for coming today and just talking about your research and uh, telling us a little bit more about how we can help people with Parkinson's disease. Well, I, I want to thank you all and everyone on the um, DD SIG for this recognition. It has been an, a complete honor and I, and I really appreciate it and it, it made my year. Well, congratulations on finishing your doctoral degree and on winning this award. Thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Parm Paget, Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, and Mira Pierce. And I am Rebecca Martin. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing the intro, and thank you for listening.
There's a blooper for you. <laughs> oh gosh, hold on. This is what happened when what happens when my spouse <laughs> tries to cook. Is that the fire alarm? The smoke alarm? Here, here, that's a fire alarm. Alarm. This might be a first. <laughs> All right, so let's try that again. <laughs> Yikes. There's always something new. I logged in tonight and I was like, I can't find the setting that I'm used to. Where did it go? What happened? I have my my parents Zooming with my kids upstairs. They're babysitting while we're doing this here. Ditto. Like I, I came to the, like the only room that maybe I might have some quiet. So we'll pray that dogs are quiet, kids are quiet, and then we're going to go. That was way more fun than any Zoom meeting I've ever been on. So thank you. Bam.